too, once picked up a penny apple from a stall, but when he learned that the woman's pears were the same price he exchanged it, and was about to walk off. Stop, said the woman, you haven't paid me for the pear. Mumber, said the boy, of course not, I gave you the apple for it, but you didn't pay for the apple. Bless the woman, you don't expect me to pay for the apple and the pear too. And before the poor creature could get out of the tangle the boy had disappeared. Then, again, we had the case of the man who gave a boy sixpence and promised to repeat the gift as soon as the youngster had made it into ninepence. Five minutes later the boy returned. I have made it into ninepence, he said, at the same time handing his benefactor threepence. How do you make that out? He was asked. I bought threepenny worth of apples, but that does not make it into ninepence. I should rather think it did was the boy's reply. The apple woman has threepence, hasn't she? Very well, I have threepenny worth of apples, and I have just given you the other threepence. What's that but ninepence? I cite these cases just to show that the small boy really stands in need of a little instruction in the art of buying apples. So I will give a simple poser dealing with this branch of commerce. An old woman had apples of three sizes for sale one a penny, two a penny, and three a penny. Of course two of the second size and three of the third size were respectively equal to a one apple of the largest size. Now, a gentleman who had an equal number of boys and girls gave his children sevenpence to be spent amongst them all on these apples. The puzzle is to give each child an equal distribution of apples. How was the sevenpence spent? And how many children were there? 37. Buying chestnuts. Though the following little puzzle deals with the purchase of chestnuts. It is not itself of the chestnut type. It is quite new. At first sight it has certainly the appearance of being of the nonsense puzzle character. But it is all right when properly considered. A man went to a shop to buy chestnuts. He said he wanted a pennyworth. And was given five chestnuts. It is not enough. I ought to have a sixth. He remarked. But if I give you one chestnut more. The shopman replied. You will have five too many. Now. Strange to say. They were both right. How many chestnuts should the buyer receive for half a crown? 38. The Bicycle Thief. Here is a little tangle that is perpetually cropping up in various guises. A cyclist bought a bicycle for L15 and gave in payment a check for L25. The seller went to a neighboring shopkeeper and got him to change the check for him. And the cyclist, having received his L10 change, mounted the machine and disappeared. The check proved to be valueless and the salesman was requested by his neighbor to refund the amount he had received. To do this, he was compelled to borrow the L25 from a friend, as the cyclist forgot to leave his address, and could not be found. Now, as the bicycle cost the salesman L11, how much money did he lose altogether? 39. The Orangiers puzzle. How much did yer pay for them oranges? Bill, I ain't going to tell yer. Jim. But I beat the old cove down fourpence a hundred. What good did that do yer? Well, it meant five more oranges on every ten shillings worth. Now, what price did Bill actually pay for the oranges? There is only one rate that will fit in with his statements. Age and kinship puzzles. The days of our years are three score years and ten. Some weeks see. Ten. For centuries it has been a favorite method of propounding arithmetical puzzles to pose them in the form of questions as to the age of an individual. They generally lend themselves to very easy solution by the use of algebra, though often the difficulty lies in stating them correctly. They may be made very complex and may demand considerable ingenuity, but no general laws can well be laid down for their solution. 
the solver must use his own sagacity. As for puzzles in relationship or kinship, it is quite curious how bewildering many people find these things, even in ordinary conversation. Some statement as to a relationship, which is quite clear in the mind of the speaker, will immediately tie the brains of other people into knots. Such expressions as, he is my uncle's son-in-law's sister, convey absolutely nothing to some people without a detailed and labored explanation. In such cases the best course is to sketch a brief genealogical table, when the eye comes immediately to the assistance of the brain. In these days, when we have a growing lack of respect for pedigrees, most people have got out of the habit of rapidly drawing such tables, which is to be regretted, as they would save a lot of time and brain-racking on occasions. 40. Mama's age. Tommy, how old are you? Mama, Mama, let me think. Tommy, well, our three ages add up to exactly 70 years. Tommy, that's a lot, isn't it? And how old are you? Papa, Papa, just six times as old as you. My son, Tommy, shall I ever be half as old as you? Papa, Papa, yes. Tommy, and when that happens our three ages will add up to exactly twice as much as today. Tommy, and supposing I was born before you, Papa, and supposing Mama had forgot all about it, and hadn't been at home when I came, and supposing, Mama, supposing, Tommy, we talk about bed, come along, darling, you'll have a headache, now, if Tommy had been some years older he might have calculated the exact ages of his parents from the information they had given him, can you find out the exact age of Mama, 41, their ages, my husband's age, remarked a lady the other day, is represented by the figures of my own age reversed. He is my senior, and the difference between our ages is one eleventh of their sum. 42. The family ages. When the Smileys recently received a visit from the favorite uncle, the fond parents had all the five children brought into his presence. First came Billy and little Gertrude, and the uncle was informed that the boy was exactly twice as old as the girl. Then Henrietta arrived and it was pointed out that the combined ages of herself and Gertrude equaled twice the age of Billy. Then Charlie came running in and somebody remarked that now the combined ages of the two boys were exactly twice the combined ages of the two girls. The uncle was expressing his astonishment at these coincidences when Janet came in. Ah, uncle, she exclaimed, you have actually arrived on my 21st birthday. To this Mr. Smiley added the final staggerer, yes. And now the combined ages of the three girls are exactly equal to twice the combined ages of the two boys. Can you give the age of each child? 43. Mrs. T.I.M.P.K.I.M.'s age. Edwin, do you know? When the Timpkinses married 18 years ago Timpkins was three times as old as his wife. And to date he is just twice as old as she. Angelina, then how old was Mrs. Timpkins on the wedding day? Can you answer Angelina's question? 44. A census puzzle. Mr. and Mrs. Jorkins have 15 children, all born at intervals of one year and a half. Miss Ada Jorkins, the eldest, had an objection to state her age to the census man, but she admitted that she was just seven times older than little Johnny, the youngest of all. What was Ada's age? Do not too hastily assume that you have solved this little poser. You may find that you have made a bad blunder. 45. Mother and Daughter. Mother, I wish you would give me a bicycle said a girl of twelve the other day. I do not think you are old enough yet, my dear, was the reply. When I am only three times as old as you are you shall have one. Now, the mother's age is forty-five years. When may the young lady expect to receive her present? Forty-six. 
Mary and Marmaduke UK. Marmaduke, do you know, dear, that in seven years' time our combined ages will be sixty-three years? Mary, is that really so? And yet it is a fact that when you were my present age you were twice as old as I was then. I worked it out last night. Now, what are the ages of Mary and Marmaduke? Forty-seven Rover's age. Now, then, Tommy, how old is Rover? Mildred's young man asked her brother. Well, five years ago, was the youngster's reply. Sister was four times older than the dog, but now she is only three times as old. Can you tell Rover's age? Forty-eight. Concerning Tommy's age, Tommy Smart was recently sent to a new school. On the first day of his arrival the teacher asked him his age, and this was his curious reply. Well, you see, it is like this. At the time I was born I forget the year my only sister, and happened to be just one quarter the age of mother, and she is now one third the age of father. That's all very well, said the teacher, but what I want is not the age of your sister and, but your own age. I was just coming to that, Tommy answered, I am just a quarter of mother's present age, and in four years time I shall be a quarter the age of father. Isn't that funny? This was all the information that the teacher could get out of Tommy Smart. Could you have told, from these facts, what was his precise age? It is certainly a little puzzling. 49. Next door neighbors. There were two families living next door to one another at Tooting Beck the Gyps and the Simpkins. The united ages of the four Gyps amounted to 100 years, and the united ages of the Simpkins also amounted to the same. It was found in the case of each family that the sum obtained by adding the squares of each of the children's ages to the square of the mother's age equaled the square of the father's age. In the case of the Gyps, however, Julia was one year older than her brother Joe, whereas Sophie Simkin was two years older than her brother Sammy. What was the age of each of the eight individuals? 50. The Bag of Nuts. Three boys were given a bag of nuts as a Christmas present, and it was agreed that they should be divided in proportion to their ages which together amounted to 171 two years. Now the bag contained 770 nuts, and as often as Herbert took four Robert took three, and as often as Herbert took six Christopher took seven. The puzzle is to find out how many nuts each had, and what were the boys' respective ages. 51. How old was Mary? Here is a funny little age problem, by the late Sam Lloyd, which has been very popular in the United States. Can you unravel the mystery? The combined ages of Mary and Anne are 44 years, and Mary is twice as old as Anne was when Mary was half as old as Anne will be when Anne is three times as old as Mary was when Mary was three times as old as Anne. How old is Mary? That is all. But can you work it out? If not, ask your friends to help you, and watch the shadow of bewilderment creep over their faces as they attempt to grip the intricacies of the question. 52. Queer Relationships Speaking of Relationships said the parson at a certain dinner party. Our legislators are getting the marriage law into a frightful tangle. Here, for example, is a puzzling case that has come under my notice. Two brothers married two sisters. One man died and the other man's wife also died. Then the survivors married. The man married his deceased wife's sister under the recent act, put in the lawyer. Exactly. And therefore, under the civil law, he is legally married and his child is legitimate. But, you see, the man is the woman's deceased husband's brother, and therefore, also under the civil law, she is not married to him and her child is illegitimate. He is married to her and she is not married to him, said the doctor. Quite so. And the child is the legitimate son of his father, but the illegitimate son of his mother, 
Undoubtedly the law is a hoss. The artist exclaimed, if I may be permitted to say so. He added, with a bow to the lawyer, certainly, was the reply. We lawyers try our best to break in the beast to the service of man. Our legislators are responsible for the breed. And this reminds me, went on the parson, of a man in my parish who married the sister of his widow. This man, stop a moment, sir, said the professor, married the sister of his widow. Do you marry dead men in your parish? No, but I will explain that later. Well, this man has a sister of his own. Their names are Stephen Brown and Jane Brown. Last week a young fellow turned up whom Stephen introduced to me as his nephew. Naturally, I spoke of Jane as his aunt. But, to my astonishment, the youth corrected me, assuring me that, though he was the nephew of Stephen, he was not the nephew of Jane, the sister of Stephen. This perplexed me a good deal. But it is quite correct. The lawyer was the first to get at the heart of the mystery. What was his solution? 53. Heard on the tube railway. First lady, and was he related to you? Dear. Second lady, oh. Yes. You see. That gentleman's mother was my mother's mother-in-law. But he is not on speaking terms with my papa. First lady, oh. Indeed. But you could see that she was not much wiser. How was the gentleman related to the second lady? 54. A family party. A certain family party consisted of one grandfather, one grandmother, two fathers, two mothers, four children, three grandchildren, one brother, two sisters, two sons, two daughters, one father-in-law, one mother-in-law, and one daughter-in-law. Twenty-three people, you will say. No, there were only seven persons present. Can you show how this might be? Fifty-five. A mixed pedigree. Joseph Bloggs, I can't follow it, my dear boy, it makes me dizzy, John Snoggs, it's very simple, listen again, you happen to be my father's brother-in-law, my brother's father-in-law, and also my father-in-law's brother, you see, my father was, but Mr. Bloggs refused to hear any more, can the reader show how this extraordinary triple relationship might have come about, 56, Wilson's poser, speaking of perplexities, said Mr. Wilson, throwing down a magazine on the table in the commercial room of the railway hotel, who was speaking of perplexities, inquired Mr. Stubbs. Well, then, reading about them, if you want to be exact it just occurred to me that perhaps you three men may be interested in a little matter connected with myself. It was Christmas Eve, and the four commercial travelers were spending the holiday at Grassminster. Probably each suspected that the others had no homes and perhaps each was conscious of the fact that he was in that predicament himself. In any case they seemed to be perfectly comfortable, and as they drew round the cheerful fire the conversation became general. What is the difficulty? asked Mr. Packhurst. There's no difficulty in the matter, when you rightly understand it. It is like this. A man named Parker had a flying machine that would carry to. He was a venturesome sort of chap reckless. I should call him and he had some bother in finding a man willing to risk his life in making an ascent with him. However, an uncle of mine thought he would chance it, and one fine morning he took his seat in the machine and she started off well, when they were up about a thousand feet. My nephew suddenly, here, stop, Wilson, what was your nephew doing there? You said your uncle, interrupted Mr. Stubbs, did I? Well, it does not matter. My nephew suddenly turned to Parker and said that the engine wasn't running well. So Parker called out to my uncle, look here, broke in Mr. Watersong. We are getting mixed. Was it your uncle or your nephew? Let's have it one way or the other. 
What I said is quite right. Parker called out to my uncle to do something or other. When my nephew, there you are again, Wilson, cried Mr. Stubbs, once for all. Are we to understand that both your uncle and your nephew were on the machine? Certainly. I thought I made that clear. Where was I? Well, my nephew shouted back to Parker, phew. I'm sorry to interrupt you again, Wilson, but we can't get on like this. Is it true that the machine would only carry two? Of course. I said at the start that it only carried two. Then what in the name of Aerostatilon do you mean by saying that there were three persons on board? Shouted Mr. Stubbs. Who said there were three? You have told us that Parker, your uncle, and your nephew went up on this blessed flying machine. That's right. And the thing would only carry two. Right again. Wilson, I had known you for some time as a truthful man and a temperate man, said Mr. Stubbs, solemnly. But I am afraid since you took up that new line of goods you have overworked yourself. Half a minute, Stubbs, interposed Mr. Watterson. I see clearly where we all slipped a cog. Of course, Wilson, you meant us to understand that Parker is either your uncle or your nephew. Now we shall be all right if you will just tell us whether Parker is your uncle or nephew. He is no relation to me whatever. The three men sighed and looked anxiously at one another. Mr. Stubbs got up from his chair to reach the matches. Mr. Packhurst proceeded to wind up his watch. And Mr. Watterson took up the poker to attend to the fire. It was an awkward moment. For at the season of goodwill nobody wished to tell Mr. Wilson exactly what was in his mind. It's curious, said Mr. Wilson, very deliberately. And it's rather sad, how thick-headed some people are. You don't seem to grip the facts. It never seems to have occurred to either of you that my uncle and my nephew are one and the same man. What? exclaimed all three together. Yes, David George Linklar is my uncle, and he is also my nephew. Consequently, I am both his uncle and nephew. Queer, isn't it? I'll explain how it comes about. Mr. Wilson put the case so very simply that the three men saw how it might happen without any marriage within the prohibited degrees. Perhaps the reader can work it out for himself. Clock puzzles. Look at the clock. In Goldsby Legends, in considering a few puzzles concerning clocks and watches, and the times recorded by their hands under given conditions, it is well that a particular convention should always be kept in mind. It is frequently the case that a solution requires the assumption that the hands can actually record a time involving a minute fraction of a second. Such a time, of course, cannot be really indicated, is the puzzle. Therefore, impossible of solution, the conclusion deduced from a logical syllogism depends for its truth on the two premises assumed, and it is the same in mathematics, certain things are antecedently assumed, and the answer depends entirely on the truth of those assumptions, if two horses, says Lagrange, can pull a load of a certain weight, it is natural to suppose that four horses could pull a load of double that weight, six horses a load of three times that weight, yet, strictly speaking, such is not the case, for the inference is based on the assumption that the four horses pull alike in amount and direction, which in practice can scarcely ever be the case. It so happens that we are frequently led in our reckonings to results which diverge widely from reality, but the fault is not the fault of mathematics, for mathematics always gives back to us exactly what we have put into it. The ratio was constant according to that supposition, the result is founded upon that supposition. If the supposition is false the result is necessarily false. If one man can reap a field in six days, we say two men will reap it in three days, and three men will do the work in two days, we here assume, 
as in the case of Lagrange's horses, that all the men are exactly equally capable of work, but we assume even more than this, for when three men get together they may waste time in gossip or play, or, on the other hand, a spirit of rivalry may spur them on to greater diligence, we may assume any conditions we like in a problem, provided they be clearly expressed and understood, and the answer will be in accordance with those conditions. 57. What was the time? I say. Rack brain. What is the time? An acquaintance asked our friend the professor the other day. The answer was certainly curious. If you add one quarter of the time from noon till now to half the time from now till noon tomorrow, you will get the time exactly. What was the time of day when the professor spoke? 58. A time puzzle. How many minutes is it until 6 o'clock at 50 minutes ago it was 4 times as many minutes past 3 o'clock. 59. A puzzling watch. A friend pulled out his watch and said, This watch of mine does not keep perfect time, I must have it seen to. I had noticed that the minute hand and the hour hand are exactly together every 65 minutes. Does that watch gain or lose? And how much per hour? 60. The WAPSHAW's Wharf Mystery. There was a great commotion in Lower Thames Street on the morning of January 12, 1887, when the early members of the staff arrived at Watshaw's Wharf they found that the safe had been broken open, a considerable sum of money removed, and the offices left in great disorder. The night watchman was nowhere to be found, but nobody who had been acquainted with him for one moment suspected him to be guilty of the robbery. In this belief the proprietors were confirmed when, later in the day, they were informed that the poor fellow's body had been picked up by the river police. Certain marks of violence point to the fact that he had been brutally attacked and thrown into the river. A watch found in his pocket had stopped, as is invariably the case in such circumstances, and this was a valuable clue to the time of the outrage. But a very stupid officer and we invariably find one or two stupid individuals in the most intelligent bodies of men had actually amused himself by turning the hands round and round trying to set the watch going again, after he had been severely reprimanded for the serious indiscretion, he was asked whether he could remember the time that was indicated by the watch when found, he replied that he could not, but he recollected that the hour hand and minute hand were exactly together, one above the other, and the second hand had just passed the 49th second, more than this he could not remember, what was the exact time at which the watchman's watch stopped, the watch island of course, Assumed to have been an accurate one. 61. Changing places. The above clock face indicates a little before 42 minutes past 4. The hands will again point at exactly the same spots a little after 23 minutes past 8. In fact, the hands will have changed places. How many times do the hands of a clock change places between 3 o'clock p.m. and midnight? And out of all the pairs of times indicated by these changes, what is the exact time when the minute hand will be nearest to the point IX? 62. The club clock. One of the big clocks in the cogitator's club was found the other night to have stopped just when, as will be seen in the illustration, the second hand was exactly midway between the other two hands. One of the members proposed to some of his friends that they should tell him the exact time when if the clock had not stopped the second hand would next again have been midway between the minute hand and the hour hand. Can you find the correct time that it would happen? We have here a stopwatch with three hands. The second hand, which travels once round the face in a minute, is the one with the little ring at its end near the center. Our dial indicates the exact time when its owner stopped the watch. You will notice that the three hands are nearly equidistant. 
Bior and Minutehand's point two spots that are exactly a third of the circumference apart, but the second hand is a little too advanced, an exact equidistance for the three hands is not possible. Now, we want to know what the time will be when the three hands are next at exactly the same distances as shown from one another. Can you state the time? 64. The three clocks. On Friday, April 1st, 1898. Three new clocks were all set going precisely at the same time 12 noon. That noon on the following day it was found that clock A had kept perfect time. That clock B had gained exactly one minute. And that clock C had lost exactly one minute. Now, supposing that the clocks B and C had not been regulated, but all three allowed to go on as they had begun, and that they maintained the same rates of progress without stopping, on what date and at what time of day would all three pairs of hands again point at the same moment at 12 o'clock? 65. The Railway Station Clock. A clock hangs on the wall of a railway station, 71 feet 9 inches long and 10 feet 4 inches high. Those are the dimensions of the wall, not of the clock. While waiting for a train we noticed that the hands of the clock were pointing in opposite directions, and were parallel to one of the diagonals of the wall. What was the exact time? 66. The village simpleton, a facetious individual who was taking a long walk in the country came upon a yokel sitting on a stile. As the gentleman was not quite sure of his road, he thought he would make inquiries of the local inhabitant, but at the first glance he jumped too hastily to the conclusion that he had dropped on the village idiot. He therefore decided to test the fellow's intelligence by first putting to him the simplest question he could think of, which was, What day of the week is this, my good man? The following is the smart answer that he received, when the day after tomorrow is yesterday. Today will be as far from Sunday as today was from Sunday when the day before yesterday was tomorrow. Can the reader say what day of the week it was? It is pretty evident that the countryman was not such a fool as he looked. The gentleman went on his road a puzzled but a wiser man. Locomotion and speed puzzles. The race is not to the swift. Ecclesiastes X. I. I. 67. Average speed. In a recent motor ride it was found that we had gone at the rate of 10 miles an hour, but we did the return journey over the same route, owing to the roads being more clear of traffic, at 15 miles an hour. What was our average speed? Do not be too hasty in your answer to this simple little question, or it is pretty certain that you will be wrong. 68. The two trains. I put this little question to a station master. And his correct answer was so prompt that I am convinced there is no necessity to seek talent railway officials in America or elsewhere. Two trains start at the same time. One from London to Liverpool. The other from Liverpool to London. If they arrive at their destinations one hour and four hours respectively after passing one another. How much faster is one train running than the other? 69. The three villages. I set out the other day to ride in a motor car from Akerfield to Butterford. But by mistake I took the road going via Cheesbury, which is nearer Acrefield than Butterford, and is 12 miles to the left of the direct road I should have traveled. After arriving at Butterford I found that I had gone 35 miles. What are the three distances between these villages, each being a whole number of miles? I may mention that the three roads are quite straight. 70. Drawing her pension. Speaking of odd figures, said a gentleman who occupies some post in a government office. One of the queerest characters I know is an old lame widow who climbs up a hill every week to draw her pension at the village post office. She crawls up at the rate of a mile and a half an hour and comes down at the rate of four and a half miles an hour, so that it takes her just six hours to make the double journey. 
Can any of you tell me how far it is from the bottom of the hill to the top? 71. Sir Edwin de Tudor. In the illustration we had a sketch of Sir Edwin de Tudor going to rescue his lady love, the fair Isabella, who was held a captive by a neighboring wicked baron. Sir Edwin calculated that if he rode 15 miles an hour he would arrive at the castle an hour too soon, while if he rode 10 miles an hour he would get there just an hour too late. Now, it was of the first importance that he should arrive at the exact time appointed, in order that the rescue that he had planned should be a success, and the time of the tryst was 5 o'clock, when the captive lady would be taking her afternoon tea. The puzzle is to discover exactly how far Sir Edwin de Tudor had to ride. 72. The Hydroplane Question. The inhabitants of Slocombe on Sea were greatly excited over the visit of a certain flying man. All the town turned out to see the flight of the wonderful hydroplane. And, of course, Dobson and his family were there. Master Tommy was in good form, and informed his father that Englishmen made better airmen than Scotsmen and Irishmen because they are not so heavy. How do you make that out? Asked Mr. Dobson. Well, you see, Tommy replied. It is true that in Ireland there are men of cork and in Scotland men of air, which is better still, but in England there are light airmen, and fortunately it had to be explained to Mrs. Dobson, and this took the edge off the thing. The hydroplane flight was from Slocombe to the neighboring watering place Poodleville five miles distant, but there was a strong wind, which so helped the airman that he made the outward journey in the short time of ten minutes, though it took him an hour to get back to the starting point at Slocombe, with the wind dead against him. Now, how long would the ten miles have taken him if there had been a perfect calm? Of course, the hydroplane's engine worked uniformly throughout. 73. Donkey Riding During a visit to the seaside Tommy and Evangeline insisted on having a donkey race over the mile course on the sands. Mr. Dobson and some of his friends whom he had met on the beach acted as judges, but, as the donkeys were familiar acquaintances and declined to part company the whole way, a dead heat was unavoidable. However, the judges, being stationed at different points on the course, which was marked off in quarter miles, noted the following results, the first three quarters were run in six and three quarter minutes, the first half mile took the same time as the second half, and the third quarter was run in exactly the same time as the last quarter, from these results Mr. Dobson amused himself in discovering just how long it took those two donkeys to run the whole mile, can you give the answer, 74. The basket of potatoes. A man had a basket containing 50 potatoes. He proposed to his son, as a little recreation, that he should place these potatoes on the ground in a straight line. The distance between the first and second potatoes was to be one yard, between the second and third three yards, between the third and fourth five yards, between the fourth and fifth seven yards, and so on an increase of two yards for every successive potato laid down. Then the boy was to pick them up and put them in the basket one at a time, the basket being placed beside T.H.